welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Crappy Christian. I am your host and resident crappy Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat, pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. Sheila, hey, welcome to Confessions of a Crappy Christian. Thank you. And I, I love the title. Thank you. Probably everybody listening could probably relate to it. <laughs> People either love it or very much don't like it or understand it. So it's, oh, uh, I love it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, so we are going to have a conversation about mental health. When I have these conversations, I always kind of like to give people that heads up on the front end. Sure. Because honestly, sometimes I'm not in the headspace to listen to other people talk about the hard parts of mental health. But uh, you have a really incredible story and a lot of wisdom to offer. And you have your new book, Holding On When You Want to Let Go. And I would love to just hear a little bit about you and where this book came from so people can know a little bit about you before we jump in. Sure. It really came out of the first half probably of 2020 when everything, you know, when the world kind of stopped and everything closed down. And I was so used to being able to be out most weekends, you know, speaking, being with women. And and I really loved that. And at first, the whole idea of no makeup, staying in my pajamas, binge watching the Great British Baking Show. This was like, excellent. My favorite. (laughs) Yeah, mine too. But then I found myself kind of spiraling again. And that was a little scary for me because a few years ago, I was hospitalized for severe clinical depression. And I really felt like I was on a pretty even keel. You know, I I still take my medication every day. I mean, I, I know how to basically take care of myself. I have a couple of girls that are what I call my safe sisters. You know, we know where the bodies are buried and we can cover each other and just be there for each other. But I found that this level of despair that I was feeling again, it kind of scared me. And so that's a lot of people write books because they're experts on subjects. I write books because I'm searching, because I'm questioning, because I, I don't have all the answers. And that's really where the book came from, just trying to see How do we live in days where we feel like we're just literally hanging by a thread? Absolutely. And I mean, I think pandemic or not, that resonates for a lot of people, but it did. I remember fairly early in the pandemic thinking, okay, if I'm struggling a little bit with this new reality, I know I can't be, I can't be the only one whose mental health is being impacted by this. And my thought was that there are likely people who are experiencing this for the first time. Right. Like yeah. People like you and I who have like a lineage of mental health, it was scary and hard, but like mildly familiar. Right. And these people That's who true. were like trapped in their homes and their reality had completely changed. So I talk very openly about struggling with generalized anxiety disorder and you m- more talk about the depression side of things. So I've always wondered like how, what led to you, your hospitalization? Because I've had moments where I'm like, I, should I be somewhere right now? You know what I mean? <laughs> I do know what you mean. Well, honestly, I never thought 
I would do that. My, my dad committed suicide when he was in a psychiatric hospital when he was 34 years old. Mm. And so the whole specter of, of a psych hospital is terrifying to me. Absolutely. In fact, when I was 16 years old, I actually lost my best friend because her dad was hospitalized for a time in the place where my father died. And I wouldn't go with her and I couldn't tell her why. Mm. And I really wounded her and she walked away from me. But it was just, that was a place of nightmares to me. So my whole thing was, I think my life will always be difficult. But if I just keep serving the Lord, if I keep trying to get everything right, then I'll be happy when I get to heaven. But but God is so much more gracious and loving and merciful than that. And kind of basically allowed my life to fall apart. I used to co-host a program called the 700 Club with Pat Roberts. And I did that for five years. And one morning while I'm asking my first guest a question, she turned the tables on me and said, you know, Sheila, you sit here every day asking us questions. Let me ask you one. How are you doing? And I wasn't expecting it. And I didn't have time to kind of pull that wall up that I kept around my life. And, and I kind of fell apart. I started to cry and I, and I couldn't stop. And by that evening, I was in a psychiatric hospital and I was the same age as my father. So that was pretty terrifying for me. I mean, actually, when I when I walked off the set, I called a, one of my best friends, a guy called Henry Cloud, and I said, you know, I think I am losing my mind. Mm. And he said, no, you're not, but you need some help and you need it quickly. Mm. I Yeah. I, so if people that follow me on Instagram, I actually came off my medication earlier this year as, you know, one of my worst choices. Uh, and Being there, done that. Right. I, most people that have been on it for a long time have done this. And I wish that I would have like had a conversation with someone who had done it, but you know, hindsight's 2020, uh, tapered off of it responsibly with the help of a doctor and then kind of like lost my mind and then had a really terrible re-entry to the medication, which can happen, but I didn't know. And I retrospectively, it's just interesting how different life experiences going somewhere to get help really wasn't on my radar where mm-hmm. it was on your radar, but in this like really traumatic with this really yeah. traumatic backstory. So what I know that there is probably very difficult to summarize on a podcast episode, but what was that experience? What did you learn while you, you were, it was a month, correct? Yeah, I, it was for a month and I was diagnosed with severe clinical depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. And the interesting thing was the first night I was, I mean, I was terrified. I, because I thought when I was a little girl, I used to say, I'm going to grow up and be just like my dad. He was kind of my hero. And then that first night I thought, well, there you go. Mm-hmm. You know, here you are. But it turned out to be the, one of the best things that has ever happened to me. I mean, I, sometimes I think I wrote in one of my books that God took me to a prison to set me free mm-hmm. because at my worst with nothing good left, I mean, in a psych hospital, they take away your hair, dry your makeup, everything you can't hide behind anything. Mm. It's just you raw and broken on the floor. But I literally discovered what David wrote about in Psalm 34, where he said, mm. the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned how many lies I believed growing up about myself, that if you dug down to the kind of foundation stone in my soul, it would have said, there's something wrong with me. Mm. Because my father attempted to kill me before he killed himself. And he never touched my brother or my sister. So I thought everybody in our family knows there's something wrong with me and nobody's going to say anything. 
So I just have to try. I have to try harder than everybody else. I have to pray more. I have to go to church every time the doors are open. If your earthly father could turn on you, it's possible your heavenly father could too. So I'd better be so, so careful. I think that's a really important and interesting correlation. I think that a lot of maybe not specifically mental health issues, but so many things, so many conversations that I have on the podcast and in real life somehow go back to earthly father and our in our like difficulty of removing God from what our, you know, my, I just had an interview last week where the guy that I was interviewing, his mother was a stripper and his father was a pimp and owned every strip strip club in the city that they lived in and was just this really horrendous. And so much of his story is like having to remove God from who his earthly father was. And, but what's interesting is that the, I think the converse is possible as well. I have the most wonderful earthly father. Awesome. And I'm so blessed. And I have to remind myself that like my, my heavenly father is even better. He's even better. He's even greater. He loves me even more. And so I, I think it can be interest, an interesting correlation yeah, no matter what sure. your experience on earth is. Speaking to the pandemic, because that was correct, that was when yeah. things kind of started to spiral for you. What about it? Do you, can you look back and see kind of what about the pandemic it was that kind of set that in motion? I think it was a few things. It was it was first of all, I didn't realize, I mean, I my passion is being with women in Bible study and teaching and speaking to women and listening to women. And I don't think I realized how much I received from that, mm. you know, hearing other women's stories. And because I always hang around for a long time afterwards, just so that I can listen to all the different stories of, you know, places I've never been, but they've been and yeah. found God to be there as well. And so suddenly there was none of that. And then our son at that point was in Houston and, and he got COVID and he was really sick and we couldn't go. And that just about drove me crazy. Yeah. And then I would something I've now stopped, I would watch the evening news. Nope, not doing it anymore. <laughs> no. Um, and I remember one night in particular, and it wasn't even the national news, it was our local news here in Dallas. I think local was, news is worse. Yeah, I, I totally <laughs> think it's worse because it's like, oh yeah, I've been there. Yeah, I, right. I, I know that person. Yeah. Right. And it was this woman who was, she'd been married for 52 years and her husband was in the hospital dying and she couldn't say goodbye. And I remember literally getting on falling to my knees and just sobbing because nothing made sense anymore. Mm-hmm. And there was so much pain and so much hurt and thinking, Lord, will things ever get back to normal? And will is this just a whole new normal that we'll have to adjust to? And my spiritual mentor before she died was Billy Graham's wife, Ruth. Sometimes when he would be off speaking at crusades, I would go and stay with her at the house. And I learned so much from her. And she said, whenever you're struggling with something, Don't, I mean, study God's word and read what's current, but then go as far back as you can. Don't just read current books. Go as far Mm -hmm. back in our history and our story because our brothers and sisters have left a trail. And so I I was looking at all the different early church fathers, and I came across this thing by a guy called Athanasius who lived in the fourth century. And he wrote this interesting thing. He said that whereas most of scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. They give us a language. They give us a language of lament, of questioning, of anger, of joy, of pain. And so one of my dear friends, a guy called Dr. David Jeremiah, sent me this little book. It's called The Focused Life. And it's going through all the Psalms 
in a month. And so what I started doing was we live in a townhouse and I would go out in the balcony and I would read three Psalms. I did it this morning um, before you and I talked, read three Psalms out loud. And I discovered it was so good for my ears to hear what my mm. eyes were reading. Yes. And it was like this declaration of this is what's true, no matter how I feel at this particular moment. And I discovered just an anchor in the word of God, because when you're praying the Psalms, you're praying the living word of God. And there's power in that. And that's really been a salvation for me. That's huge. The song, I love that distinction that of the scripture speaks to us and the Psalms speak for us. It's so true. I remember, so I, I think I said this before we started recording, I've struggled with anxiety since I was like seven. Those are my early, earliest memories of like panic and intern that internal turmoil. And I remember into college when my relationship with Christ really became my own reading Psalms and being like, wait, David was depressed. Yes. Nobody ever told me that the man after <laughs> God's own heart was nuts like I am. <laughs> and the, it like opened something up inside of me that I, I think it was the first time that I felt like I could talk to God about my mental health. Right. That it wasn't embarrassing or broken. It was like, because David will give you whiplash. Like David will be, <laughs> why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? Turn it around and be like, I will sing your, like, I will praise your name all the days of my mm -hmm. life. That's how I feel. That's yeah. how we all feel. I, I can literally in the same breath be like, I don't feel you. I don't hear you. I don't know where you are. Oh, wait, no, no, no. You're really, you're good. You're faithful. <laughs> you know, like, it's, I know. I suggest to people all the time, you know, I talk a lot about biblical literacy and that part of so much of specifically women's everybody's, but I speak more specifically to women is that we don't know our Bible. So then Absolutely. we don't know what God says about us to us for like what he did for us. And I get it that the Bible is, in, it can be intimidating and there are names in there that you're like, that there's, there's no way I could ever pronounce this. There's literally no way. <laughs> Who calls their son Jehoshaphat? Really? I mean, right. come on. And that's like, I could, you can phonetically get that one. There are some that I'm like, it took two lines for you to write that name. I don't even know. <laughs> and there are some wild and crazy stories in scripture. But I most often tell people to start with like Psalms and Proverbs because, and I net you put words to why, because it's, it is me. Like David is mm -hmm. me. I yeah. am David. It's, that is beautiful. And I, I love that, that distinction because it's so true and I think I think finding someone in scripture who so clearly struggled yeah like, there's so many stories of scripture of people who struggled but David is like raw yeah he's the poster child exactly <laughs> he really is he is the poster child of struggle of misunderstanding of battling with God which I think a lot of us mm -hmm. feel like we don't have permission to do and the reality is as that was his whole life. Yeah. Yeah. Like he did that until the end of his days. He did that with God. I know. And I think that it's more <laughs> fascinating to me, I think, than anything is that it's the pattern that he set this whole thing of, I can't do this. Where are you? Get me out of here. Oh, no. I remember you're here. You're a rescuer. I see that same pattern in the Garden of Gethsemane with Christ. Yes. I mean, it's like there you have Jesus pouring out his pain I mean crushed to the point of death like if there's any any other way but then but not my will your will be done mm -hmm. and I think there's such 
for me, that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned. I get to process my pain in the presence of God. And then you make space for grace when you pour everything out rather than thinking you have to say the right thing or, you know, kind of sound like a good Christian. You don't. You have to come come as you are, not as you wish you were. Yes. No. And and that, I think, holds so many people back from really experiencing Mm -hmm. the fullness of God is. And that's why I encourage so many people to read David, because David did not do this curated. Yeah perfected relationship with God. And you're just like, <laughs> this is, exactly. you know, I got nothing. This is all I got. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the idea in relation to specifically mental health of it being like, quote unquote, fixed or going away or being healed. Like what are, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I'm sure yes. people have asked you that. Oh yeah. My, one of the most common questions I get when people know that I've been in a psych hospital is how long did it take them to fix you? (gasps) And I, I kind of smile because I understand the question. Absolutely. If you don't, if you've never dealt with any kind of mental illness and I say, I'm not fixed. It's way better than that. I'm redeemed. I Mm. understand. I've made peace with my story. I believe that mental illness is not curable, but it's treatable. Amen. And I think that's, I mean, now obviously I'm not ruling out the fact that God can do anything. You can do it every moment. 100%. 100%. God can show up and just like, you know what? You've carried that for long enough. I'm going to take it now. Yes. And I believe God can do that. But until he does, I still take my pill every day with a prayer of thanksgiving. Mm. Um, because I did what you did. I tried one point thinking, you know, my life's in a really good place. You know, my my husband and I are doing great. Our son's doing great. So I, I did the same thing with, I tapered off, you know, slowly. And Honestly, for a couple of weeks, I did great. I felt mm-hmm. like, wow, you know, I'm healed. And then um, I started to feeling that, you know, mm-hmm. spiral again. And it was just, in fact, it happened one night at the dinner table. Our son was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 at the time. And we were, three of us were having dinner. And I don't remember what Christian did. It was something little, like he maybe knocked over a can of soda or something. And all I did was say his name. But there was something in the tone of my voice that he'd never heard before. Mm. And I saw a look in his eyes and, and I excused myself from the table and I went into my bedroom and I just cried. And then I was like, I'm calling the doctor tomorrow. But I have a note that I carry around with me. I'm never without it because he slipped a note under my bedroom door that night. And he said, mom, dear mom, I think you are the best mom and I hope you feel better soon. And I thought, I'm not going to let my son grow up with a crazy woman just because I don't want to be on medication. Hundred percent. I so the reason I wonder how many people have stories of getting off their medication and then having an Uh-oh. encounter and being like, oh, never mind. <laughs> because mine was I thought I was doing okay. Like I thought, and I probably did for maybe not weeks, but a couple of days. And I'm feeling like I'm losing it. My husband and I are in the car, and I was starting to think maybe I needed to get back on my medicine. And I looked at him and I said, Okay, this is your chance to tell me if you need to, like, this is your hall pass. Do you think I need to get back on my medicine? I want you to tell me the truth. And instead of saying yes or no, he put his hand on my leg and he said, I think you've had less good days than you think you have. Oh, wow. Which was such a loving and compassionate way to say, "Uh, uh uh-huh, yeah. (laughs) Can I drive you there now? (laughs) Can we we turn around and run by the... the by the uh, pharmacy now. And I, I called my doctor that afternoon and got back on it. And, but it was, it takes a lot, I would say to love people 
it takes a lot to love people, period. It takes a yeah. lot to love people who struggle the way that we do. And I can mm-hmm. look back and see men that I have loved that retrospectively have been like, that would have never worked. That would have never worked. He would have never lovingly put his hand on my leg and no. said, this hasn't gone as yeah. well as you think it has, you know? And so um, talking about mental health and share, you know, that was just in June, Wow, May and June. And I was pretty like raw and open about it on my Instagram. I, and re- like, I look back and I don't know in the moment why I made that decision, but now I can look back and see it was because mental health is so difficult to talk about period. It's even more difficult to talk about as a believer, sometimes yeah. relating back to my previous question of like, people think it's supposed to be fixed or healed, right. but you're going to take it away. Have you found, have you found it like more difficult to talk about in the Christian sphere? Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> but the interesting thing is when I was hospitalized, um, and that was in 1992, I didn't know one other Christian who struggled mm. with depression. I remember going online and trying to find a book if there was anybody else's experience and I couldn't find a thing. Mm-hmm. I think we're doing a much better job now. Yes. But I mean, we have a long, long way to go. And I think there's a lot of genuine ignorance about mental illness, because if, if you have a brain tumor, you can show a scan. And it's like, there it is there. And people are like, oh yeah, I totally get that. We'll pray, we'll pray for you. Yeah. But because it's such an indistinct science, because it's something we're still learning so much about, people just kind of don't understand. But then you add the baggage of, well, you're a believer. You know, I I can, I mean, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, it's like, can't you just apply that to your life? And and I would say, well, but I don't walk up to somebody who wears glasses and say, you can do all things through Christ. So take your glasses off and then they bump into a pole. Right. You know, it's just, it's trying to help people understand because I didn't understand that first week in hospital, my psychiatrist said, I want to put you on medication. And I was like, nope, I don't want any of your happy pills. And he said, no, those are street drugs. We don't do them in here. Exactly. He said, um, basically your brain is not producing enough serotonin or dopamine or neopinephrine, whatever for different people. and all this will do is restore the levels to a place where you can begin to deal with any underlying issues that you have to deal with. And that was really helpful for me. Yeah. I think that ignorance or lack of education about mental health really does, because then it does make the conversation difficult. I remember the first time I openly admitted that I took Xanax, not regularly, but when I was having a panic attack, although there have been seasons where I took it regularly. And saying that in front of a group of friends and one of the friends essentially being like, oh, so you're high. Oh, wow. And having to say, well, no, Xanax was created and formulated for, I probably feel more like you do normally coming out of a panic attack. You know, you made the mention of street drugs. Like, yes, if you use it improperly, it will get you high. But for me, it just makes me not feel like I'm going to die. Exactly. You know, and the same thing with taking Prozac, you know, yeah, it restores normal levels in my brain. It mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, it, yeah. And, and it, it's, I think it's easy depending on where you're at. Like it's easy to get frustrated with those conversations and trying yeah. to approach them with grace and compassion and knowing yeah. that they're like that friend wasn't trying to hurt my feelings. Right. Maybe not the best choice of words or no or or delivery (laughs) but 
if, if, if all, if you don't, if you haven't done life with someone with mental yeah. illness or done life with someone who's medicated for mental illness and all you know of Xanax is that, yeah. I can see how you would think, oh, like you're just choosing to cope by getting high. Like, well, no, no, but <laughs> thanks, <so. laughs> thanks for asking. <laughs> thanks, though. But I think that I do agree with you that it has, even just in my lifetime of having mental illness, I've watched the conversation change so much and it's very encouraging because I think it needs to be a conversation. And that sometimes means being willing to kind of look stupid and ask questions. But like those of us on the other side have to be willing to approach that with grace. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think one of the couples who has really helped is Kay and Rick Warren. Mm -hmm. You know, they, he, he wrote that book just like, thank you. But their son, Matthew struggled from when he was really a little boy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kay told me once that when Matthew was 10 years old on Mother's Day, after she put him to bed and she was walking toward the door, he asked her if she could help him end his life. Mm-hmm. He's 10 years old. And they did everything for Matthew. I mean, they took him to the best. They tried all sorts of medications, everything that was available at that time. And Matthew did great for a long time, but every day cost him. And then one day he couldn't anymore. And out of that devastation and grief of losing this beloved darling son, they, they started this ministry to people with mental illness and their families and the church community. And they invited me to be a speaker at the first, it was called a symposium of the church and mental health. And I was really grateful that I was on the first night because the second night was like the Surgeon General and the head of the American Association. Was like, I, was, I was like, yeah, please put me first. I yeah. ain't following them. But I remember looking out at this packed auditorium and some of them were people who struggle. Some of them were family members. Some of them were clinicians. And simply saying, I I am profoundly grateful for the gift of mental illness because it means I can look into the eyes of somebody else who's struggling and say, me too, you're Mm -hmm. not alone. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I don't see it as a a limp anymore. I see it as a sacred gift Mm. because there's so many people who feel alone in the darkness. And they think they'll never make it out. And so to be able to say to people coming behind you, listen, no, come on, we can do, we can walk this thing together because I found Jesus is here. Mm. We don't have to get out of here and he'll be there. He's right here. Mm. I've used the analogy that uh, God brought me through the fire so I could come back with buckets of water. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Because there have been seasons where I'm like, I'm not going to see my seven-year-old grow up. Like, yeah. So I agree with you. I don't know that I'm quite where you are of not feeling like it's a limp and feeling like it's a gift. And uh, it's very encouraging that that that's possible and that that's something to pray towards and move towards. I think I still do see it as a little bit of a hindrance or like a thorn or whatever. I understand. But I do I do think I'm capable of also of seeing it the way uh, of being thankful that I can look someone in the eyes and say, no, I, I get it. Or I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who were completely falling apart that had the original aversion to medication that you had. And I'm not like a drug pusher. I'm not like everybody should get on Prozac, Mm -hmm. but being able to say, let's like, at least let it enter the conversation, you know, like let's at least let's put it on the table. Let's not necessarily pick it up, but let's put it on the table. Right. That is a gift because somebody had to do that for me. I was, I think all, most people, there are very few people out there, I think, who are like, give me the drugs. Like, I can't do this on my own, you know? Uh, 
Like, yeah. yes, please sign me up for a lifetime of Prozac. Like, no, mm, thank you. No. Your book came out last month when we were recording. People can get it all the places they get books. <laughs> I, when I first started podcasting, I'd be like, tell people where they can get your book. And it was like everywhere. In bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> bookstores, Amazon, yeah. Walt, like whatever. How can people find and follow you online? My website is SheilaWalsh.com. And then Instagram, I'm SheilaWalsh1. And Facebook, I'm Sheila Walsh Connects. And I love Facebook because like, even when I was writing, I, I jumped on one night and I said, okay, girls, how are we doing? You know, mm. how are you doing in the midst of all of this? And I learned so much from that, from my kind of little tribe that you connect with and we can pray for each other. And I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. And we'll link to all of that in your show description so people can connect with you easily. Sheila, Sheila thank you for an incredible conversation. I feel like we could keep talking for like another hour. Um, I know. But I knew I would love you, but I'm right. (laughs) Well, like I said at the beginning, people either are like, oh, we're going to have a great conversation or they're like, I don't know about this. (laughs) It goes one way or the other, but I'm so thankful. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for doing it. Have a good day. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right. See you next week.